This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners. This week, we have a bonus episode. This is Women in Medicine, the Value Proposition of Gender Equity. This was a webinar that was conducted by the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative, such an important issue. And this peer learning webinar is actually based on an intelligence brief that was released uh, last month. And it's such an important issue. Women make up the vast majority of the healthcare workforce, but they're underrepresented in positions of leadership, especially amongst physicians. And this differential impact of choices and sacrifices that accompany the profession of medicine, they're not equitably distributed between men and women. And in the movement to value-based care, providing culturally competent care, gender-appropriate care, creating trust and relationships, we really need to think about how women can be empowered in leadership. And we have joining us in this bonus episode, Dr. Charlotte Collins. She's the division chief for the Center for Professionalism and Wellbeing at Geisinger. Dan, I, I just couldn't tell you how much I really appreciate her leadership as she really leads on this important issue of gender equity. Eric, this is such a great conversation that I'm really proud to share with our podcast listeners. We've got our peer, Kimberly Mueller, who moderates this conversation with Dr. Collins. And as you mentioned, Dr. Collins is the director of the center and in her efforts of directing well-being for the center, she oversaw a survey that was implemented in 2018. And as they reviewed the qualitative data from thousands of comments, they found some common themes that especially emerged around women, providers reporting higher levels of burnout and very specific barriers and constraints, especially regarding work-life integration. It's a great conversation in identifying opportunities to improve women in leadership in healthcare. And so glad that we could share it with our listeners today. Daniel, I share your enthusiasm and let's go ahead and hand it over to Dr. Charlotte Collins, who will discuss this important issue of women in leadership and gender equity as she joins us in this very important episode of The Race to Value. 
just want to say good morning or good afternoon wherever you happen to be located and we're really happy to have you here at our peer learning session today my name is kimberly mueller i'm a research analyst at the accountable care learning collaborative and i'm very excited to uh, facilitate our program today so originally founded by a merger between the levitt partners accountable care cooperative and the brookings institutions aco learning network the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative is a nonprofit peer learning member organization that's focused on accelerating the transition to value-based care. Um, we've identified organizational care delivery competencies needed for providers to succeed in risk-bearing payment models. And through events like this one, the ACLC brings together providers and industry partners and others who are innovating and succeeding in value-based care. So we're focused on identifying the what, the when, the how, and illuminating those through resources like our Accountable Care Atlas, case studies, intelligence briefs, all of which are available on our website. You can find us at accountablecarelc.org. So as many of you may have experienced firsthand, recent history has brought some uh, new focus to efforts to further diversity, equity and inclusion in healthcare and in healthcare workplaces. And adding to the stress of the COVID-19 pandemic has only intensified the need to act to ensure the well-being of our healthcare staff and patients. And so these elements frame the discussion that we've planned for you today. Our speaker today is Dr. Collins. She is a behavioral medicine psychologist who works with patients and teams across the Geisinger system, where she's responsible for overall strategy, program development, coaching, and system partnerships and alignment. Her clinical interests include patients with chronic illness and cancer. Dr. Collins obtained her PhD in clinical psychology at the University of Kansas and completed her internship at the University of Illinois at Chicago and a fellowship in rehabilitative psychology at the University of Washington in Seattle. We interviewed Dr. Collins in June of this year as part of a case study that we were developing around her work at Geisinger at the Center for Professionalism and Wellbeing. And while we were interested in the work Geisinger was doing to support their staff during a, a pretty stressful time, COVID-19 obviously, the story she told us um, became so much larger than could be captured in a case study. So as a result of that interview, the case study grew into a brief on women in medicine, in leadership, as mothers and caregivers, and like so many others in the workforce, trying to balance competing demands during a really challenging time. So the issues that she illuminated for us are particularly important for women and healthcare in general. And so we asked her to share the story in this format so we could talk about the issues and bring this topic into greater focus for our members. So Dr. Collins, thank you for bringing this important subject into sharp focus for us and being willing to share your expertise and your experience at Geisinger. And I'll turn it over to you to get us started. Thank you very much. I'm really delighted to be here and um, I've had a wonderful partnership with this group pulling this together. It's been really heartening to see how much is kind of being put out there and published out there and that this is coming to the forefront where it needs to be. So we know that women play a huge part in the medical field and about 75% of the healthcare workforce is female, but there's an imbalance between that and how many women are healthcare executives. Women are less likely to be named department chairs, and they generally make less than their male counterparts 
It's true also that women tend to gather in some of the specialties that pay less. And so that impacts us. But even in similar specialties, there's often a discrepancy between compensation. And women are balancing being both a wife and a mother and being a good doctor. And I'm not saying that men aren't. They're also balancing that. But oftentimes, much of the work for the family falls on the woman. And so it's really tough. And we've really noticed this over COVID where the demands are so much higher and then schools closed and various things happen that really put families in a jam when it comes to taking care of their family and being able to do all the work that's needed in the healthcare field. This value proposition, we really know that we're better when we're inclusive. I don't think anybody disagrees with that. It's just about kind of getting there and really focusing on value-based care. We know that there's proven impact by women in care outcomes and processes. So there's good data that suggests that being much more inclusive of women actually improves our outcomes. And women often have better outcomes in several areas than men do. So if we bring all of that knowledge and capability to the fore, we're going to improve our healthcare. The Center for Professionalism, we started this center at Geisinger about 2018, and we were initially focused on just provider professionalism and burnout. We noticed that was a big issue. We've expanded our burnout and well-being to all employees because when COVID hit, everybody was burning out. But we have expanded our work and grown across those years. And we have kind of three pillars. And here's the thing, advocacy and burnout reduction, community building, but all of these cross issues related to gender. And we often need to really think about what we need to advocate for for women, how we build their communities, and how we get them educated and trained up to take on leadership positions. We feel like the pandemic has done some good things. One is it's highlighted the importance of well-being as a key driver. We kind of knew that before the pandemic hit. And yet when the pandemic hit, it was like, oh my goodness, we really have to pay close attention to that. And so many of us in this area of well-being turned abruptly and focused mainly on that work and tried to evolve that and expand that to take care of what was happening in our centers all around our hospital platforms. And because we're having people leave Geisinger, but worse than that, we're having people leave healthcare altogether. And we don't have actually a big backlog of people to fill those slots. So we have a lot of primary care docs retiring, just that's a generational thing. We have a shortage of nurses across the nation. And women seem to be dropping out of the workforce at a higher rate as well. So healthcare is really at a crisis point right now in terms of being able to staff. I doubt anyone's hospital out there would say we're fully staffed. Um, we're all juggling and taking travelers and locums and doing whatever we can to have enough people to staff our hospitals. And we still don't, so everybody's working double time. I want to talk just about how we kind of got here on this women. So when we formulated our center in 2018, we were identifying key issues and the women's experience was one of those that we felt like we needed to pay attention to because we were hearing lots of things about the struggles women were having. And so in 2019, we started gathering some women leaders and talked about methods 
to better understand the female clinicians and their experience. And we talked about having focus groups and we began to think about how do we really identify the key issues so that we can help besides just the anecdotal information we were hearing. And so then we began planning a conference focused on women in medicine. It was really exciting. Um, and it was scheduled for September, 2020. And because we were gonna pull leaders from around the country and our group and really begin discussions and start thinking about what goals we were gonna set for ourselves and how we were gonna get where we wanted to go. That year too, right before COVID, we did something called 31 Women in 31 Days to celebrate the stories of women in the system. And that was kind of our kickoff plan uh, for how we were gonna get things going. That was March 31, 31. And then COVID hit and everything kind of went into suspended animation. We kept thinking maybe this will pass and we can have our conference, but we were unable to have an in-person conference. And so that got canceled pretty early on and, and has yet, we haven't felt confident enough to reschedule that. So during that year, during one of the lulls, when we weren't in a surge, we said, hey, let's put a survey together and launch it so we can get some more of this information. So we developed a survey, launched that out, and then I'm gonna tell you a little bit more about that. So we did the survey data, we did analyze the results and reviewed it. We identified key themes and we promised the women we would loop back to them. So we looped back and gave them some of the results. So here's the thing about the survey though, is that there were quantitative questions and open-ended qualitative questions. And we had uh, over 800 women participate in this survey. And when we took all of the open-ended question responses and put them in a Word document, we had over 77 pages of comments. So the women really, let us know what was going on. That took a long time to get, to get through and to try to really understand what was being said. And some of it was really very problem focused and really very clear. And some of it was a bit heartbreaking to hear the struggles that some of our women um, face on a day-to-day -day basis or had faced in particular situations. So we restarted our Geisinger Women in Medicine and Science group, we had had a group before and it kind of petered out. And one of the themes in the survey was we need support from other women. We're a very spread out system. So we have hospital platforms all over central Pennsylvania. We have one really big hospital, but many women just didn't feel like they were connecting with other women and, and wanted to hear about leadership opportunities and, and uh, professional development that was women centered. And so we started GWIMS, we had to do it virtually, but we got a lot of participation and that's been ongoing and that's been a source of support to our women. And the next part was really trying to identify a leadership group, women leaders at various levels. We do have some women leaders, they're less dominant than males in our leadership, but we have some associate deans, institute leaders, a couple of hospital CMOs that are women. And we got a brand new chief diversity, equity and inclusion officer about six weeks ago, because we're expanding that in our system. So that's been really helpful. And we do have some male champions. So we know that this is gonna take a village. So we've been working on figuring out how we're gonna drive the change and who can really help us do that. So we're 
we realized that in this next year, we need to advocate for some changes that women need. We need to provide lots of support and we need to get incorporated into our system strategic plan so that women are brought along with all the changes and innovations that we're planning and doing and that they're an, an integral part of all of that work. The survey itself, we looked at historical engagement surveys and continuous improvement surveys and published data to kind of benchmark. And then we asked these questions and we, we really were looking for their perceptions of the work environment, of local and executive leadership. We were asking questions about sexual harassment and we were really looking at what do women want in terms of leadership or supervisory roles? What are they hoping for? As I said, we had about 800 uh, responses. We also did our advanced practitioners. We did all of our providers. Most of the respondents work in outpatient. We have a not as a diverse group as we would like here. So we were about 84% white and about a quarter of them were already working as a supervisor or a manager. And this is a breakdown. It was pretty half and half with physicians and advanced practitioners. So here's just some highlights. The burnout rate went up. This was just a one simple question, but they were feeling burned out at least once a week. There really wasn't a difference between our APs and our physicians. In some of our other surveys, APs were higher, our advanced practitioners, but in this case, they were not. Female providers felt more favorable about their direct supervisors and managers than they did to the institute and the executive leadership. So the higher we went up the leadership train, they, the less they felt um, kind of understood and perceived that the higher levels were invested in women in the system. I think some of that's a communication problem, but part of it is that's the perception that women are having. Interestingly, the sexual harassment was mostly from patients rather than coworkers and supervisors. There were some of that, but they talked a lot about how they were treated by patients. And the women who had a lot of that going on felt that executive leadership, they had a lower impression of them, meaning I think that they were thinking that executive leadership wasn't doing enough about that, that was happening to them. Work-life conflict and burnout highly correlated, that ought to surprise no one. And women were really focused on fairness. They wanted career opportunities, they wanted professional development, they wanted fair and equitable compensation. And those were some key things in front of them. There were, again, 77 pages, so I really can't show you all of the comments, but Things like I've been told to smile in meetings, things that are expected of women in meetings or in leadership positions that aren't expected of men. No one would tell a man that he needed to smile nicely in a meeting. That's just so this idea about how you present yourself is different for women than it is for men. And then how you're judged about how you are presenting yourself is also different. And then this idea, and this is really some from patients, but not all from patients, being called Miss, Mrs. Honey, kiddo, um, and just not introduced to patients sometimes as doctor, not acknowledged by patients as the doctor, and even for highly specialized people who've been in the field a long time who introduce themselves as a physician are often not acknowledged for all of their training and work. So we kind of bucketed these in you know, what were the main issues? And of course, pay and benefits were really important and pay equity and transparency. 
I don't really know the numbers about the pay equity at our system, but we're, and that's because we're, we're not transparent as we probably could be. And that was one of the things we were gonna address at our conference that has yet to get addressed. But also this idea about parental leave, accommodation for lactation, help around dependent care needs. These are benefits that women say are really important to them and make a difference in their working lives and their home lives. Really having a female-friendly workplace, that there's some flexibility and acknowledgement about the high impact of the work women do, that they're brought up and acknowledged and celebrated. More training to reduce stigma, bias, and discrimination, microaggressions, and those kinds of things. And then really leadership and community development. So can we get meaningful mentoring? Can we build lots of opportunities? But can we be adaptive when we do that? That people are not penalized because they're having young children or they need to get to certain places to pick up their kids. I've had women say, you know, I'm not asking to work less hours. I'm asking for flexibility to pump um, my breast milk. I'm asking to be able to um, come in a little later. I can work later, but I have to get, it's my job to get the kids to school. And this sense that there's not as much flexibility as they would like. And really looking at taking a deep dive into our policies that seem to disproportionately impact women. We want to build an equitable and inclusive culture. And when we say equitable, we don't mean exactly alike because women need that flexibility and need a chance to be able to be on committees and do things um, even if they have young children and we need to figure out ways to get them involved in career enhancing opportunities. So I love this quote, so many times it feels like I have to make a choice. I, I can either be a doctor and get all those opportunities or I can be a mom and take good care of my kids. Um, we, we really uh, don't do the same thing with men and we really have to allow people to balance those roles in their life. Otherwise, we're going to drive them out of our field. And as you see, we, we need all the women we can get and we need them to stay and um, be involved in all the care that our aging population is going to demand. So that's all I had um, in the slide information. Um, and I'm happy to take questions and, uh, and see what we're up to next. That sounds great. Thank you so much, Dr. Collins. We can go yep, to the next slide there. Um, that was really thought provoking and, and hopefully our participants have been thinking about some questions or, or comments for you. And um, while we're queuing those up from the chat, I'm just gonna take uh, the facilitator prerogative um, to ask the first question. Okay. Um, but I do just wanna reiterate a caveat um, that our conversation today um, you know, lies at the intersection of well-being and sort of the crisis management and equity um, all of these forces that have been um, impacting workers across the board. So we're focusing on women in medicine today, but I, I also want to acknowledge the broad impact of the that these forces are having um, on across the board uh, in in the healthcare workforce and and other workforces. Um, even as we're focusing today on this one particular segment. 
So I uh, just want to add that acknowledgement there. So um, the question I wanted to ask you was, so Geisinger has been recognized by the National Business Group on Health for having one of the nation's best programs to promote health and well-being for staff. And, you know, as you noted, you've been working on this now for going on almost four years. Um, so as part of this work, you launched a program called RISE to help promote resilience at Geisinger. And in fact, I believe you were actually in the process of developing this before the COVID pandemic hit, and then you sort of, I think, accelerated your launch to, to get it underway to, to sort of help support the, the workforce during these really especially trying times. So can you tell us a little bit about how that program has helped your staff and um, especially women at Geisinger? And, and I'm also curious about the uptake among clinicians. Yeah, thank you for that question. So for those of you who um, RISE, who don't know about RISE programs, there's several around um, the country. RISE stands for Resilience um, in Stressful Events, and it's really a peer support program. So it's a way, if you're struggling or there's an adverse event, that you can reach out and, and someone will chat with you. Someone will sit down with you and talk to you. Um, that person will know about lots of resources in case you need additional resources, but it's really a peer support program at its heart. And we were working on this and developing um, the RISE program and looking ahead to doing this. Um, and then the pandemic hit and we all looked at each other and said, so we need this now. Uh, we launched it in three weeks. Uh, I'm not really sure how we did that, uh, but we did it because there was a pandemic and we just felt like we needed it. One of the things I like to tell people is how much healthcare workers want to help each other. We had a hundred people raise their hand and volunteer to be a peer supporter um, to the point where we really didn't have enough people calling to cover all of that at any one given time. But I think that speaks to how much people realize um, that people are struggling and that they might need someone to talk to. So, so much was happening um, when COVID hit, I'm sure for all of you, it felt like our heads were spinning and lots was going on. So we did launch it, but we really didn't get the uptake initially. And, um, and that was a little surprising to us, but the women um, and more men, women than men reached out. That, that was just the bottom line. Uh, those that reached out believed it made a difference and, and continues to make a difference. And so um, we feel like it was good, even though it, it hasn't had quite the uptake. But here's what was interesting about that. When our COVID numbers really went up, um, our folks on the front line said, we don't have time to even come out of the ICU and connect with a peer supporter. So they said to us, we need people on the floors on some kind of regular schedule checking in on us. Um, so, so we moved from the rise, which was still getting some calls to a rounding uh, program um, that allowed us to be where we were needed, where we could catch people just for a couple of minutes. And that's been a huge success. So we continue to work on RISE and we believe we'll be able to increase the number of people reaching out once our COVID numbers settle down a little bit. But again, we're in another sort of plateau at a higher level than we'd like to be. Um, so we need to get back to a more normal patient census and staffing load, which uh, I'm sure for everyone else is just a big problem here. And um, 
So what's interesting about this, at least for me, is one thing leads to another. And we have an emergent design approach here that we have used for the center, which is a bottom-up approach that allows us to shift our energies based on what we get from end users in the program. And so what we got from doing the rise and we were out promoting it was we got, yeah, that sounds really good. Right now we need something else. <laughs> and so we pivoted to something else. We kept the rise going, but I think that, you know, getting out there and talking to people and then really listening to what they have to say, I think is, is what the rise program helped us in that as much as it helped us in uh, the people that did reach out for it. That's great. And I'm so glad you mentioned the emergent design. I was going to ask you about that because I think while we're while we're talking about, you know, striving for outcomes, sometimes it's like, well, what how do I get there? What is the process? And that's a process that it sounds like others could use as well to identify what's important in their organization, in their environment, whether it's, you know, um, a healthcare industry partner or whether it's an actual healthcare um, provider organization. Um, and, and it sounds like that's a a tool that, that anybody could use in their toolbox to address whatever their local concerns happen to be. Yes, I, I love emergent design. We love working this way and find it really rewarding. It's, it's truly a bottom-up process. So the idea in an emergent design is that you're working with groups rather than for groups. So instead of assuming that what we need is this and putting a group of people in leadership together and having them decide what everybody below them needs, we go in um, at the bottom level on the front line uh, and ask, what do you need? Where are the problems? Where are the difficulties? Um, and what do you think would help? And then we design uh, programs. It's extremely collaborative and it allows for you to quickly make adjustments and there's a continuous feedback loop to it. And I can't say, you know, we started in an emergent design in 2018. Wow, the pandemic, um, you have to be able to learn and adjust on the fly. And so that was really just ended up being a perfect approach for pandemic because we were just learning so many new things and having to move left and move right and, and keep um, addressing and adjusting. And as everyone did with the whole part of the pandemic. And so this design that we already had as our embedded approach really, I think, had us responding quickly and in good ways. Because truly, I don't know, for our system, we're in a rural area. Our best advertising is for those people who are involved and invested in the program to begin with. And so not only did they tell us um, what they needed, but then they would tell um, other people in their group about it. The thing about emergent design is it can be a little intimidating to do because you're constantly adjusting your plan. Now, of course, we looked at the research and best in class and we do all of that, but you are not coming up with a program and then launching it. You are constantly adjusting your program, tweaking it, learning something new, making a change um, so that it's more and more and more targeted and helpful to the people on the other end of it. So we, I said, we love working like this. Um, it's a little bit challenging at times and you can feel kind of discombobulated when what you were doing last week, now you wanna change and do that a little bit differently, but the results have been heartening for us. 
Yeah, and it sounds custom designed for a circumstance like what we're in now when it's so hard to predict where we're going to be from week to week or month to month <laughs> in respect to, to pandemic planning, which is something of a misnomer sometimes. But yeah. so we had a, a great question um, from Dorothy. Dorothy, would, would you be willing to unmute yourself and, and ask your question? Yes, yes, I would. Thank you. Everything that you have talked about, Dr. Collins, really resonates with me. I'm a physician, actually a former Geisinger physician uh, times two. So this all resonates with me. And I'm wondering, as a collective, as a collective of women, is there something that we can do each ourselves, maybe even in just small ways, to support our female colleagues and and really promote gender equality efforts just in our day-to-day -day interactions as the very smallest and maybe more grand emailing the CEO I you know I don't know um, any any suggestions wow that's a great question I love that I think that some of what we can do is on an individual basis really providing support and being someone that um, other women can go to. So we need role models and mentors and sponsors and advocates and cheerleaders. You don't have to be everything to everyone, but to really look for opportunities to put women forward and look for opportunities to intervene when you feel like women are not being put forward. So I think even speaking up at meetings and advocating for each other, because women are often talked over or their ideas are dismissed um, until a man says it, and then it's a lovely idea. Um, also, we have to get our male counterparts involved. They're also important to this change. So we need to be talking about it more. We need to be asking the hard questions of upper level leadership, but also our own managers. And we need to do it together and say, these are important things to us. And how can we help find solutions to some of the things that are difficult and, and causing women not to work here or leave after they've come. And so I do think mm -hmm. that this idea of having allies holds us all up because we can get discouraged by ourselves. And then I think setting specific goals and expectations around this more inclusive workplace. So asking leadership to set standards and hold everyone accountable for those. I, I believe that we should have goals and leadership competencies that require us to measure how we're doing, how our women are doing, how we're spreading equity around and how we're doing with promotions and opportunities and all of those things that they should demonstrate that they are across any kind of diversity providing creating opportunities and enhancing the professional development of everyone. Agree with all of that's great. But you know, what just really resonated with me was actually specifically enlisting our male counterparts as advocates. And I can just envision speaking those words with some male counterparts that I'm very close to, but, but having those specific words with them and saying, look, you know, I would like for you, I would like for you to be an outspoken advocate for women when you see someone being talked over, when you see someone being slighted or whatever. Can I count on you for that support to be a vocal advocate? I love that. That's a great idea. 
Yeah, this takes a village for sure. And we need the men in the workplace to become more aware, attuned, and to be speaking up. We absolutely yeah. do. That is something that I think every single, I hope, I hope every single woman in medicine has a male that she can identify to ask that question. Great. Thank you. I wonder, Dorothy, before we let you go, I just I just wonder if there's anything because, you know, obviously you're you're in the thick of it, too. And I'm wondering if if mm -hmm. there's policies or processes or other kinds of enabling factors in your past experience that you found really supported you and, and helped you in in certain areas in these ways. I mean, anything that you've experienced that was really beneficial in your experience coming up as a woman and a physician as well. Well, I really like the idea of an organizational competency, almost like a scorecard. And actually, my, my current employer has such a scorecard. Mm -hmm. Equity is one of our core values and drives our mission. So it very much is on my mind because you can't manage something you haven't measured. Like, it, it's really in your face. The data don't lie. So I love the organizational competency or scorecard. And that's been very effective, I found. Great. So we've had another question, Dr. Collins, and this is sort of related, I think, to, to the question that, that Dorothy posed, but it was just a little bit more specific about asking, as a female in healthcare, how can I foster my own career growth? And as a female leader, how can I support continued career growth for other women, including those who report to me? So thinking specifically about career ladder and supporting women in, in that respect, do you have any specific points that you'd like to make on that? I, I think that one of the things is to really be clear about what you want and to go after that. So sometimes we sit back and wait for people to offer us things. Men are less likely to sit back and wait. I, I don't know why as women, we're, we think we'll work hard, we'll get recognized and people will begin to offer us things. And you can't do everything. You can't say yes to everything either. So really, I think the first thing to do is to sit down and say, where do I wanna go? Do I want more research? Do I want more teaching? Do I want to move up a leadership level? Do I? you know, is it important to me to do those things? And then figure out and look around and talk to men and women who have done that and say, I'm just trying to figure out what would be some good steps for me um, and get smart about whatever it is you want to do and take a risk. Women often are very smart and very capable and low in confidence. And some of that comes from the way women are treated, but some of it just comes from, you know, we are more likely to feel like we shouldn't take things on if we don't have 100% confidence. But you're just gonna get passed over because men just go ahead and say, I can do that, even if they've never done it. They figure they have the ability to do that. And I think women do too. We're just a little less jumping in front and going for it. And we need to say, you know, I've done this and this. I haven't done that, but I'm very capable. I learn quickly. I can do this and take risks and ask for things and look for things and talk to other people about what's been going on and be very clear with your leader. Here are my goals. You know, we all have annual evaluations or more often. Here's my goals. What do I need to do to get there? How can you help me achieve these goals? 
what are things I need to start doing, putting on my resume, what committees can I be on, who should I be connecting with, because this is where I'm headed and I, I need more experience and I need more opportunity. How can you help me? That's great. And, and one of our participants sort of, I think, made the link between what you were saying about taking risks and I think what's been in, in some of the public commentary about imposter syndrome and, oh, and women. And what, what is your thinking about that? I think everybody has some level of imposter syndrome. And I wish that it went away when you get more mature in the field. But for me, at least, in going into anything new, I feel it pop up and tell me, you think you can do that? Are you sure you can do that? I came into this professionalism and well-being field, having done a few things on the side. And, you know, I'm a psychologist, so I felt like I had some background, but I had no clear background in this. I began coaching and learning to coach, and I began, you know, taking care of people who were struggling. And I just learned as I went. But I thought many times, why are they putting me in this position? Surely there's someone more qualified than me. But you know what? There really wasn't. Um, and I've gotten better each year and my confidence has gone up. But if you gave me some completely new thing to do, it would pop right back up. And I, I think for women, that's a more present thing because we're often told growing up that there's things we can't do. Like you can't be a mom and a doctor. You can't, I don't know if that's good for you or how will you manage that? And so I think there's a little extra doubt for women put in where men are generally, and hopefully this is all changing, but men are generally brought up to believe they're gonna be a leader. And women are often brought up to believe they should be a follower. And some small messages about that, I think get stuck in our brain that we have to rewire. I think you should challenge them to do just that. Where do you want to be? What do you want to learn? Where do you see yourself in five or 10 years? And let's let's plot a course toward that for you. I think that women leaders, not all women leaders, this is very stereotypical, but I think that women leaders are often better listeners. And so one of the best things you could do as a leader is really listen and try to understand. As physicians and, and medical providers, we have a fix-it mindset, and our goal is to find the problem and fix it, right? We find what's wrong with the patient, fix it. Find what's wrong with the process, fix it. And we often miss, with patients and others, critical information because we zone in quickly on what we think the problem is, and then we began to develop solutions. And sometimes they're pretty good solutions, but a lot of times we miss that. In all the surveys I've done here, being listened to and understood is paramount. Even if you can't fix things, and many things as a leader you can't, because there are system issues that you can't necessarily fix. You can advocate for your people, but something about really listening and really making sure they see that you understand, that links people to you. And being very transparent about what's going on and why you're doing things and what you can change and what you can't change. But there's a whole host of things that come out of really that listening ear and creating opportunities in your group just to talk about what's going on and pull them together and figuring out what one of those things or two of those things would they like to go after as a group to do that. So then you pull people together and help people work together and collaborate around change. I think one of the 
difficulties with a leader is you get in a leadership position it's it's almost like being the parent where you think you you are then in charge of you're responsible for everybody's well-being and for everybody's problems you have to solve them and fix them and really that's not realistic even as a parent you can't and so really stepping back and pulling them in to have them be a big part because people feel unheard not understood and that they do not have much autonomy. That's a huge thing that physicians and advanced practitioners complain about is I have no autonomy. I'm just being told what to do and exactly how to do it all the time. So if you can foster collaboration and autonomy for them to solve some of the problems or come up with new ideas, that will help them and it will unload your shoulders a bit. That's great. And I think I think we have time for maybe one additional question. Um, and I'm going to thread a couple of things together here. So there were the, the four quadrants where you identified some opportunities to promote equity. And they were like pay and benefits, culture, leadership development. And I'm wondering where do you think we have some low-hanging fruit? And and you just you spelled out just beautifully in your prior remarks about individuals and how we as individuals can can change our behavior. But organizationally, where do you think the opportunities lie? And I'm, I'm thinking, um, for example, reflecting on the brief where we found that maybe half of academic medical centers offer a child care benefit. And yet that seems like that would be a pretty straightforward benefit to offer that would benefit parents, all parents, not just, you know, women parents, but all parents. And so I'm, I'm thinking from an organizational standpoint, are there are there certain places in there where you think there are a clearer path forward to making meaningful change for, for women and for parents in, in medicine that would sort of help address some of these issues? Yes, I like the scorecard, which we were trying to get going in that first conference. I, I really think being very clear about what the things are that women want and how we're gonna score those. I tell you, we have tried to do the childcare thing. It's not as easy as it looks. It seems like a very easy thing, but uh, we struggle with that and still don't have that, which I think makes, that's like, seems like a no brainer to me because parents would have their kids close by. They wouldn't have to go somewhere else and commute. And if they had to stay a little late, the kid would be cared for. They wouldn't be dashing out the door. I think for me, it's about flexibility. We get in our scheduling and we get in our, you know, we're all about access here, but we get so rigid in that, that there's just no wiggle room for people. And then we say, no, everyone has to come in at this time and everyone has to leave at this time. I had a woman say, you know what, right now I need more flexibility because I've got three young kids. But I promise you, I will pay that forward when my kids get a little older and other women that will say, I'm happy to step in for you that because you've got that and I want you to have a good mothering experience. So I'll take those mornings, but somehow the connection between kind of a willingness to do that for each other and, and rigid rules seem to stop us from being creative because we got to be creative. If you're a working mom or a working dad, you need flexibility and creativity. And I bet depending on the situation that there are dozens of things under that rubric that people could give you a list of and then systems could figure out which ones to kind of go after. And here's the other part that the previous question was, and I talked about emergent design, is the more the people have a voice in what it is you're going to go after, what you think is low-hanging fruit, the more you're going to get to the right thing and the more invested and willing people are going to be to join you and do the work that it takes to get there. 
I suspect all of you have been through this, you know, we're trying to hold on to nurses and different people and we're doing retention bonuses and there's all this stuff around pay. Don't get me wrong. Everybody wants a good salary and appreciates a raise, <laughs> including me. But what we found out is that in this pandemic is that isn't enough. People really want other things and work-life balance is one of the biggest ones. And so however we do that with flexibility, childcare, people want, and frankly, the younger generation is gonna demand a better work-life balance. They don't think going and getting four or $500,000 worth of debt and having to work 80 hours a week is a good deal. They don't. <laughs> and so we need, they're pushing us and that's a good thing, but we need to flex and be creative so that people can come into this field and do the work they love and not kill themselves in the process by burning out. Excellent, thank you. Well, I think that's an, a, a great message to end on, flexibility and creativity, because I think that that uh, you know, goes a long way in, in moving us forward. And I hope that you'll keep us posted about when you can have your conference, because I think we'd love to hear what you talk about and what comes out of that, because I think you're you know, really at the leading edge of this and it's really exciting and inspiring work. So really looking forward to hearing more about that. So thank you for your time today and looking forward to, to hearing more about the, your work going forward. So thank you to Dr. Collins uh, again for spending some time with us and, and sharing your wisdom. And thank you to the whole team for sort of an effortless production. Really appreciate all the help. And we look forward to seeing you virtually and otherwise uh, at a future event. Thank you and have a good day.